Hello. Howdy. Hi. This was a weird intro because I said hello right as you grunted. So that <laughs> was that's a fun one, but we're gonna go was, with it. I was stretching just for the just for the sake of everybody. I was stretching. That's what it was. I'm I can't like, attest. I could see it. It was stretching. Yep. My back hurts now. I think it's a part of fatherhood. Your back just always has to hurt. Well, as a you carry around a baby, so it's gonna that's hurt. True. Yeah. Also, being a father means you're getting older and getting older also means your back hurts. My back hurts because I'm all of those things. Mm-hmm. But also I uh, went to basically top golf a couple days ago. Drive shack. Yeah. Big shots. Oh, cool. Is that that's what the, the Vero version that's the is? The Vero version. Yes. Okay. Because I am down here on vacation. So uh, this episode is brought to you by Mom's Closet. Mom's Closet. You can find things from your childhood you wish were burned up. It's got that mom's closet smell. <laughs> now, I, I told her I wasn't going to make fun of her closet on the podcast. Too late. <laughs> so you're the one who said mean things about it. I didn't say mean things. I mean, you kind of did. You implied said, meanness. It's, it's got, like, I know your mother is a grandmother. She is. There is there is a grandmother. I don't know if it's the same perfume that they all get together in a meeting and are like, this is what <laughs> we're going to wear now. Uh, <laughs> or what? But it's, or if it's just. It's the grandma best, conclave. If it's, if it's bestowed upon you when you become a grandmother. I don't know. I haven't. I've seen my mom since she became a grandmother. But she's very um, newly a grandmother and does not count yet. Like, I don't think you get to really be truly grandma-ish until they get to at least four or five years old. Yeah. At that point, you begin to, your body just naturally like, oh, time to change, time, <laughs> time to change. Well, this is the Midnight Narwhal podcast, and it's not a podcast about grandmothers or their closets. Nope. Or stretching or age. It is about neither of those, neither, none of those things. <laughs> Neither of any of the things. Well said. I don't even know where to go after that. (laughs) So I'm just going to say. (laughs) Introduce yourself. (laughs) Oh, we haven't even done that yet. No. Well, my name is Andy. And my my name's James. And as I've said before, this is the Midnight Narrow Podcast. This is an episode that is a follow-up episode to the previous episode. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to say episode a lot because it it has, it's got a P sound. So there's popping noises. Episode three of season three of the Midnight Narwhal podcast. That's what this episode is. It will also be episode number like 27. Grand total. Total. Grand yeah. total. Whatever. Doesn't really matter. Oh, the only thing that matters is you're listening and we're grateful for it. So thank you, you for thank you wasting your time. Let's be honest. You're probably just driving. You're driving, don't want the silence because then you have to be introspective and think of all the mistakes you've made. So now you can listen to our mistake, which is this podcast. That is so, that got really truthfully deep. I can't stand driving in silence. I abhor driving in silence. Because you think about your mistakes? Because I hate my own thoughts. Because yeah, I think about my mistakes. I think about stuff that like, hey man, remember in fourth grade when you made this mistake? You haven't thought about this? Everyone else does. Yeah. That's why I wouldn't do well in so many of these stories we told where it's like, yes, they're traveling long distances that, and it's 1827. Oh, I, I would totally like I tell people all the, like if I'm on a desert island, like I'm I'm talking like I'm making a Wilson like I will have to like I would have to just to not go insane, even though in doing so, that would make me a little bit crazy. But you'd be without Wikipedia, mm. which is one of my sources for today's episode. 
Great transition. What Wasn't else? Wasn't that what phenomenal? Other, what, like what, what, super yeah. smooth. What other sources do you have today, Andy? Well, it's the same sources as last episodes. Okay, cool. Literally cool. the exact same sources. Exact same. I've done nothing other. So the main one comes from adivis.com um, from an article they have on there titled American Hippopotamus. That's that's really- I just remember where we left off. Of- <laughs> well, in your defense, it has been two and a half months since we recorded that first part of this. Yep. Peak the previous episode. Curtain. It is two and a half months Removed. since that happened. Yeah. yeah. Frederick Le Huguenot Joubert Duquesne was born in the Cape Colony on December 21st of 1877. We think. Okay. We think. Cape, Cape Colony is what we know today as South Africa, by the way. Okay, cool. So yeah. when I say Cape so, Colony, it's South Africa. So white Africa. Got it. Yes. It's important to say that even, or I guess to point out that Fritz's friends did not think that he even knew his own age. So we don't know if December 21st, 1877 was his actual date of birth or not. It's like a puppy. Like, I don't quite know when my dog's birthday is. I just kind of approximate he's about this old. But Fritz was a lean and alluring man with a youthful, clean-shaven look. He was said to be a top-flight womanizer with unending confidence. Okay. Real Tony Stark sort of vibes. Yes. Tony Stark sort of vibes, but clean-shaven. Okay. And not ridiculously wealthy. Okay. His hair was black or maybe it was brown. It was dark. It it wasn't blonde. His eyes were brown or maybe they were hazel. They they might have been blue. And he spoke with a very clipped British accent, which was probably fake. Okay. I'm kind of getting a picture. Are you? I'm trying to to make it difficult to get a picture. No, that's why I said kind (laughs) of. Got it. Many of the details of Fritz's life are just as murky and deceptive as looking underwater in a swamp. A lot of this is because the journalist of his day who assembled all of these stories that we have about him and all the facts we have about him, a lot of them were rather unscrupulous. But The main reason is because Fritz would just dramatically reinvent himself over and over again. Okay. So we're going to talk through kind of early life stuff with him. And I started with all of that because it's important to know that a lot of this stuff that we'll talk through today, well, I mean, pretty much all of it comes directly from Fritz himself. So we don't know how much of this is actually true. Some of it we do. But a lot of it is, well, this was what was reported, and that's that's the extent of our knowledge. But Fritz, he grew up on a farm, and his father was a hunter and was a trader who was constantly traveling. So he'd hunt, find stuff, and then travel far away to, to trade it and make money. So because his dad's gone a lot, he was raised by his mother and his blind uncle Jan, spelled J-A-N. Okay. But Jan lost his sight when an elephant gun backfired on him during a hunt. <laughs> So Jan's got nowhere else to go. So he just hangs out at the farm. He raises Fritz. Okay. So Fritz is raised by a blind man. He's raised by a blind man, his mother, and his absentee father. Okay. I mean, absentee father doesn't really do much raising, I guess. No, 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 no. Yeah. But small periods of it. 
Got it. You know, all right. And as a boy, Fritz would watch the adults return from the river with a hippopotamus because hippos were among the easiest animals to hunt because they're big. Yeah. Can't it's really hard miss. to miss that. If, if you miss a hippo, gosh, you're, I mean, you're a bad shot. Like, but I don't, I, it's, I don't know what, what you could hit if you can't hit a, a hippopotamus. I'll be honest. I feel like I could hit it. I could miss a hippo. I'm a really bad shot. I'm the broadside. I, I don't, I'm just saying, could. I think I'm the guy who could miss a hippo. Okay. I've not shot guns often, but every time I have, it's been downright embarrassing. Also, is the plural for hippopotamus hippopotami, hippopotamuses, no. or hippopotamus? it's hippopotamuses? Okay, got it. It's we actually you don't remember this because it was two and a half months ago, but we did talk about that in the oh. last in the previous oh, okay. episode. Okay, cool. Sorry about that. <laughs> but we did clear that up. Good. It is All hippopotamuses right. is the correct plural form of it. Got it. Okay. But Fritz would watch these adults return from the river, dragging along the hippo, and then they would butcher up its massive carcass and divide the meat among all the families who were hanging around. Nice. Then it was up to Fritz and the other kids to collect the fat and sell it to the French soap manufacturers that were in the area. Good old hippo soap. Ooh, exquisite. Yep. As a teenager, he was sent to school in Europe. So he went to a military academy in Belgium. And he was studying weaponry and explosives, which I don't think that's a healthy thing for teenagers to study. Also, I mean, we're Americans. We are uh, Americans. But there's this there's this framework of like Europeans being soft and and sissies. I can't, I can't imagine that to take a South African boy who routinely saw hippopotamuses butchered and then dispersed among the you know the surrounding families and other i'm sure intense awful things and then said hey all right internalize that and go up uh (laughs) go up to school in europe with people whose biggest struggle is let's see this is 1800s europe so it's not clean it's not safe but it's still also not the wild west either our our friend from the last episode who who did see some stuff in the wilderness and yes the, and, and, but i struggle to see him thriving in that area unless he's doing something related to firearms explosives things <laughs> like that where that's fair he's probably got ptsd before he's even like of age like, like from all the stuff he's seen because it's not of course it's not just hippos that he that he saw oh, that was sure just a, a common a common thing yeah he was he was there for a while over in belgium but he received a letter from his father in 1899 calling him back to fight for his people against the british mm. at this time he was 22 probably the second boer war was underway so we talked about this this is when yep. the British are fighting the natives is not the correct term, but longer term colonists in South Africa. Uh, but they're they're fighting whole war down there. It's the second one of those. And Fritz arrived at the Boer headquarters in the city of Pretoria just before the British very aggressively changed their strategy. Second Boer War had started off with a number of shocking Boer victories. Like the British did not see that coming. The British were not prepared and the Boers just honestly kind of steamrolled them on about three different engagements. So the British were like, oh gosh, we, 
obviously what we've been doing for a while is not working. So they very aggressively kind of stepped up the terms of engagement. All of a sudden we're threat level red, no more that orange or yellow crap. It's mm-hmm. full on and we're destroying everything. Throughout history, that's that's been England's downfall is underestimating mm-hmm. their enemy. That's how Always. we won. Yep. Uh, we also didn't play by the rules. We're like, no, we're not going to line up in a line and shoot at each other. We're going to shoot you. And that's what we did. I can't imagine what these African tribes are doing. So yeah, like it makes sense. Like I would put all my money on the board. I'd be like, yeah, they're going to win. No way they don't win because they got a home field advantage. They don't play by any like. So the British, they changed to be more like the savages they were trying to defeat. Mm-hmm. And the war turned uglier and much more unruly. So got rid of that. Okay. Over the next year, the British commanders would funnel the Boers into concentration camps and straight up scorch the earth behind them. Like like legit scorch it? Like light it on fire? and Think William Sherman in the Civil War and his march from Atlanta to, to the sea. We're talking burning everything to the ground. Okay. Yeah. It is that level of of destruction. Mm. Except instead of like Sherman, Sherman was just like, burn it all, whatever, left the people there. The British are just rounding up all the Boer people and putting them into literal concentration camps. And so at one point, as many as 160,000 Boer prisoners were in camps at one time. Those are my least favorite camps. They're the worst types of camps. And 25,000 of these Boer prisoners would die in the camps by the end of the conflict in 1902. Dude. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So the British changed tactics. That's not a normal British tactic at all. No. That is very much a different thing. And of course, this is also when Frederick Burnham is showing back up for his second tour of duty, mm-hmm. fighting these Boer, Boer wars which is just so much fun to say. But it's also during this time when they change tactics and all of a sudden the British are advancing again that the Boer leadership, they depart for Europe. And so the soldiers break up into little small bands of guerrilla fighters roving the land. So we know that Fritz was captured and escaped at least twice in one attempt. And I I like this one. Uh, He was in a prison, like an actual prison. And over time, he slowly dug through the grout of the prison wall with a spoon. So like he he slowly he dig 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 dig, dig. he yeah. absolutely did, yeah. um, and then would you know dump dump the little spoonful of grout outside his window, um, when it was windy. He'd wait for it to be windy and then slowly pour that pour that grout out and let the wind that's just it. carry yeah, away. Yeah, you can't you can't have a mound of grout out that window. That's it's a, a dead giveaway. It's a dead giveaway. And so it took it literally he took weeks to do this. However, when when Fritz finally decided he was like okay. I can do it now. Moves on the bricks, started to wiggle his way through the hole that he opened. The stone wall partially collapsed on him because, of course, digging out the grout mm-hmm. made the wall weak. Yeah. And a guard found him pinned and unconscious the next morning. Oh, okay. <laughs> you had me going there. I was like, man, cool. Prison escape. Right. Yeah, up no, he didn't alley. get out that, that right time. Up his alley. You can go read about this war and, and the British have their whole camp set up and they're funneling prisoners there. And I guess they decided that, oh, oh, this is not going well. Maybe this is not the humanitarian sort of thing that a lot of our soldiers are probably hoping and thinking that we are doing. Or maybe they just ran out of space and didn't have enough soldiers. I don't know. But they start they started sort of dispersing their prisoners out internationally, which is a weird thing. So they sent him, they shipped him out to Portugal 
They're like, hey, you're going to go to prison in Portugal. But he very easily escaped. But the first thing he did was he did find time to seduce the jailer's daughter before he left. Of course he did. Because he's okay. that guy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's a bad boy. You know, they, they to the core. Honestly, how how could they not fall for him? He's got those blue hazel brown eyes, eyes with his black that. or brown hair, mm-hmm. sometimes British accents. But yep. he then from Portugal made his way to England where he got to England. He's like, hey, so I'm definitely not an escape prisoner. What I am is I am a defector from the boar side. Like I hate them. And I came all the way over here because I want to join you to take them down. They're dirty savages. I can't stand them. So he literally enlisted as a British soldier, which of course they're like, sweet. So he got a free ride back to Africa. And once he got back to Africa, ditched the Brits, took (laughs) off on his own again. Okay. I thought you were for a second. I was like, oh, he's, he's, uh, he's a double agent. Like he's going to sneak in there. (laughs) No, no. He just used them for the transportation. So it was literally just a Uber like, okay, cool. Yeah. Where do I sign? Sweet. I mean, I'd assume he'd get like a firearm as well. And and oh yeah, they gave, you know, (laughs) fully outfitted. Hey, here's a bunch of new clothes. We'll be well fed on the way over there. All of those sorts of things. Do you want some knives? Here's some knives for you. Wow. But they felt like a right bunch of idiots at the end of the day. (laughs) So he gets back and he becomes a military courier and is delivering messages between all the boar commandos because they're all split up all over the place. Mm -hmm. And But it's during this traveling around that he saw the devastation of the British's scorched earth policy. So he saw the the fires just raging out of control. He saw the horses being sprayed with bullets so that the boars couldn't use them. Mm. He saw the crops burned down to the ground and just as far as you can see, ashes. And it was during this time that he started to hear about a daring ranger for the British side named Frederick Burnham, which, yes, Fritz's first name is also Frederick, but he had it. He had it changed as a, as a younger man. He's like, yeah, mm-hmm. no, I'll go by Fritz. But it is also during this time he hears about about Frederick Burnham and he had been gone from his house for 11 years by this point. Like he had literally never gone home. Wow. But in one of his his travels, he realized he was going close to where his home was. So he's like, hey, I'm going to go take that opportunity to go visit my family's homestead. And he did know that his father had died very shortly after writing him that letter like, hey, you need to come home, fight for your people. But other than that, he had gotten no news of his family. And in one retelling, because this is one of the things like we don't know, because this is all just from Fritz telling us or telling the reporters at the time. It wasn't until he had actually gotten off of his horse and touched the blackened stone that had once been the corner of the house's foundation that he knew exactly where he was. Mm-hmm. But the British had so totally destroyed the place that literally had to find the foundation to know that this is exactly where his home had once stood. So hearing some origin story stuff. A little bit. Tragic origin story for a hero. Well, hold on. While he was there, Fritz found a servant who had worked for his family since he was a child. There's an old man named Kanya, and he was living in a primitive shelter that he literally dug for himself in the ruins of the house. Mm. Kanya was an old man hunched over and at this point, of course, completely demoralized by everything that's been going on. And Kanya explained to Fritz that the British soldiers 
had hung Fritz's blind uncle Jan from a telegraph pole and then jabbed his body full of holes with their bayonets. Oh. They then taken turns raping Fritz's sister Elsbeth and then shot her. Dude. Then they tied his mother's hands, raped her, and carried her off. Really tragic origin story. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. This is more more Punisher stuff <laughs> than like you were expecting? Uh, yeah. Fritz assumed that his mother had been taken to the nearest concentration camp. And so he sped on over there. Turns out, fun fact, he had a British uniform because they had been, they had given it to him as a air quotes defector. So he put on his British uniform, entered the camp and tried to track her down. He ended up finding her in a barbed wire enclosure, holding a seventh month old baby, mm. both of them starving and dying of syphilis. Before leaving, Fitz promised his mother he would kill 100 Englishmen for every drop of blood in her body. That's a lot. That's a, that's a hefty promise. That, that's a big promise. I if don't someone, think he thought through it very well. No, and if someone promised me that, I'd be like, you know, that's, that's a lot. You could just wait, stop. Wait a minute, I know I'm dying. Like, yeah. That seems a little far-fetched. <laughs> like, that's, that's too much for me. How about, how about just 100? Just a round, that's a round number. You know, and just leave it uh, at that. That would still make me feel feel that would make me feel about like <laughs> <laughs> wow. Fritz also said and made a point to say um, in the retelling of this, and he said this a number of times. He was furious about his mother, didn't care about the baby. <laughs> because yeah, the baby's his half brother, but the mm -hmm. baby's also half British. Racist. And uh, he hates the Brits. Yeah. Uh, which is what this whole story is either designed or is the root of that hatred. Mm -hmm. But as okay. he's riding away from the camp, still in uniform, possibly in tears, who knows? Fritz saw two captains in the British army approaching. As a good British soldier, he saluted them. And once they'd passed, he turned around in his saddle, shot both of them in the back. <laughs> then got off his horse, kicked each one of them in the face multiple times. Which I'll be yeah. honest, seems backwards. You kick him in the face, yeah. then you shoot him. Then you shoot him. <laughs> As all things with when Fritz tells stories, any number of these details could be wrong. Possibly that entire story could be made up. I really hope it's not. I hope it is because it's horrible. Well, okay. You know, like all of this is horrible. horrible. All yes. of this is the war is horrible. Like mm -hmm. it, it is. But I, I would rather this be true than for this to be the awful inner workings of someone's imagination this to me makes me think it's weirdly how similar to it in my head all i think of is anakin with the sand people taking his mother uh in star wars like that's <laughs> the all i think <laughs> yes and it leads to him killing the younglings like this is where my brain goes is i just see him showing up at the camp there's mom tied up obviously just and then you just see the red lightsaber and mm -hmm. dead british soldiers everywhere like that's the sort of feeling i get but basically the end result's the same anakin gets really mad at everybody and fritz gets really mad at well the british yeah as in literally everyone says that he became consumed with a searing rage for the British. Yeah, but he wasn't the chosen one. No, he was not the chosen. Well, you don't know. Maybe he is. You don't know the rest of the story. Okay, yeah. But the guy who wrote down this part of the story 
and uh, sort of editorialize about it. And I quote, he said, something happened inside of him that infused him into a unit of hate. Mm. And Fritz was captured one last time late in the war. This time, the British shipped him off to a prison camp in Bermuda, which as far as camps go, that's the one I want. <laughs> yeah, where they, they just tiki drinks every night and, you know, white sand beaches. Sounds like a great place to be a prisoner. Way more chill than Portugal. Mm-hmm. No offense, Portugal. I'm sure you're great. But yeah. you're let's be real. You're just an add on to Spain. So, like, congratulations. Yeah, yeah it's just more complicated Spanish. But they took him to Bermuda because they know his penchant for escaping. They tied his wrists and ankles so tightly that he'd be have scars on them for the rest of his life. Ouch. Okay. But because he's Fritz, who, as we said in last episode, went by the name Black Panther, the Black Panther of the Veld, Wakanda forever. He wasted no time in escaping. In one version of the story, because there's always versions of the stories. Mm -hmm. He coordinated a jailbreak with two other prisoners and they banged out their plans in Morse code from their cells, which so much of these stories I look at and I go, this man's watched movies and has said, hey, I'll add that in my story. But there were no movies for him to steal from. How much of the movies are stolen directly from Fritz Duquesne Mm. and his stories? And also how many times in history would jailbreaks have been stopped if people who ran prisons were like, hey, we want our guards to know Morse code? No Morse code. This like, that should be part outmoded of... and outdated communication tactic. Learn it. Like even today, do the guards in prisons know Morse code? Probably not. Yeah, probably not. That seems like a glaring hole in the system. I'm just saying. We've been warned for decades. And I feel like we haven't learned. And I feel like because prisons have libraries. They can yeah, you teach. can go learn it. You could, you could go learn it. You could go to jail, not know Morse code. And, and know it in a couple of weeks. And then know it in a couple of weeks. Yeah. And then you're working out your, your plan and boop, you're gone. So you need. But they banged other plans in Morse code on the cells. I don't know if they were using pipes or who, like, I have no idea. But they slipped past the guards and dove into the sea with their clothes and boots tied to their bodies as bullets whizzed all around them. Three weeks later, Fritz Duquesne reached the port town of Hamilton. Wait, three weeks later? Yeah, so he escapes from jail with his other dude. Jumps into the water. Okay. Yep. And Somehow works his way. Somehow. Okay. Don't know. Yeah. Kind of hole in the story. Yep. So anyway. Uh... <laughs> We're going to skip all the interesting stuff where I got away from the people with the guns. Where I, and I, I made it I, through I, the wilderness with my friend who will never I... be mentioned ever again. Maybe he ate him. I found... A, a pack of sea turtles and I roped them. <laughs> I swear, if that showed up in this, I'd be like, no, no. Jack Sparrow. That's the Jack Sparrow tactic. <laughs> uh, but according to biography of him by Art Ronnie, while he was there, he established himself as a pimp for a prostitute named Vera. Okay. <laughs> what is it with these guys pimping? Like, I mean, they... well, for him, it was a very strategic job placement. Oh, I'm sure. Because in the course of her nightly business, Vera acquired a whole bunch of information about the, all the ships moving in and out of the port. Mm, okay. So how long also, you here for, big boy? Also, I would like to point out, this is just a realization I had. You have talked more about prostitutes in the history of this podcast, yep. I think, than I have talked about dead children. That's not true. No, it has to be. There it is nothing be. more common than dead children in this podcast. 
I mean, we brought it up today. We did. And we actually, we did bring it up. Today. Yeah, <laughs> it's, so. it's weird how often, to be fair, we are telling a lot of stories from the 17 and 1800s and the 17 and eight, actually everything before like they were 1950s rock, rock are full both, of child like, death, child death and prostitution. Yes. Um, like, I feel like if you made a world, a word cloud of our podcast, child death would be the big ones. <laughs> and then prostitution, large one, large one. Bless yeah. your ears. Mm-hmm. Andy cool. and James. Right. And that's Sweet. about it. But he had been a pimp for only a week when he managed to get one of Vera's clients super drunk, learned he was a crew member on a private yacht that was about to set sail for Baltimore. While Vera did her part in the transactions, Fritz stole the dude's uniform, snuck onto the ship in his place, huddled down into one of the holds, and pretended to be drunk. Mm. He was eventually discovered, but he hit it off so well with the yacht's owner, who is a middle-aged inventor of a powdered headache remedy. No news if that was goody or not. The owner was, hey, you're cool. Like, why don't you ride along with us? Hey, hey, Mr. Goody. I just wound up here. I found my way on this ship. And I think you're a pretty cool guy. I'd like to stick with you. I um, like it on this boat. You, you're, I, I'm going to have a hangover tomorrow. Can I try that goody stuff? <laughs> that, maybe that's what he was. He was. And the guy was like, oh, try some of this. This will mm-hmm. make you feel better. And whether or not, it's like, oh, yeah, that's, yep. that's super great. Yep. It was, at this time, knowing the time, it was probably cocaine. Probably, or some form of it. Anyway, um, opium. It was um, either opium or cocaine based. They were they were throwing drugs to, in everything like that this this time. It was really a wonderful free time to be alive <laughs> in the pharmaceutical industry. Freedom reigned too much. In 1902, Fritz set foot on American soil for the first time on July 4th. July 4th, nice. Everyone's in a good mood on July 4th. I'm sure he was really welcomed. Yeah, except for it was probably actually on December 16th is when he showed up because more accounts say December 16th than say July 4th. Okay, so it's like a reverse Jesus's <laughs> birthday situation? <laughs> kind of, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, scholars actually say that, that he arrived in December, not in the summertime when it is actually celebrated. But by this point, there was now peace in Southern Africa because the Boer territories had been subdued and claimed and demolished oh, by the British. Oh, no. okay. That sucks. Okay. The bad guys won. That they in this, yes. And given all these sort of sinister deeds that went on during the war that Fritz was very famous for, which I didn't really get into, like I didn't want to make that necessarily the focus of this, mm-hmm. but there's a lot out there. You can go look it up if you want to. Um, he is the Black Panther of the Belt, just like a huge thorn in the Brit side. And yeah, goes on a rather murderous rampage of just killing but i got that can get depressing so i didn't want to dwell on that too much no that's good that's but good. he he developed a reputation that was well deserved and so he was like yeah i'm probably not gonna be welcome anywhere in south africa because the brits are in control so when he landed in baltimore he went up to new york because baltimore sucks and didn't want to stay there not his words not really my words but just a general feeling that i get because i've never been but he got a job selling subscriptions for the New York Sun. 
So, hey, welcome to America. Sell newspapers. Okay. But subscription. So he's not like the boy on the corner. He's walking door to door. Hey, would you like to sign up to have this brought to your house? Again, I don't think this, I don't picture this, this grizzled, like, assassin, war man, ex-pimp, just insane guy going to a buttoned up door to door. Sir, may I interest you in a subscription to the New York Sun? Like, I don't see him doing well in a job like that. <laughs> Well, I get that. Yeah. But Fritz is also someone who is outrageously charming. When oh, he I forgot. Yeah, I forgot. He, he has like, charisma yeah. like nobody's business. Okay, got it. He was also an immigrant and living his own sort of very lonely version of the normal American immigrant story. You know, here I am showing up a new country. I'm going to reinvent myself. I'm going to hustle and I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to embrace my American dream. Mm hmm. And it worked for him. I'm going to skip a little bit because we're not going to spend a whole lot of time about his rise up through the industry. Uh, he became a reporter um, after a while, which is a strange thing. Oh, you're really good at selling subscriptions. Therefore, we want you to write the paper as opposed to sell it. Yeah. But they and did it and it worked. Okay. And seven years later, Fritz Duquesne found himself sitting in the White House with the president of the United States. Okay, this is, uh, when is this? This is in 1909. Okay, so and Theodore tapped. Roosevelt. Oh, okay. Was preparing to leave office. Literally, we're talking like January of 1909. He's okay, about so to be he's, done. He's, he's lame duck. Yeah, he's, he's on his way. Okay. And, That's my favorite president, by the way. I love Theodore well, Roosevelt. Well, yeah, you're a young man. So therefore, Teddy Roosevelt is going to be your favorite president. It's how this works. We all have been there. And then we grow up and we're like, Theodore Roosevelt was just a little boy. He never grew up. He was just always a little boy. He and got just, shot and kept on giving a speech. I know. It's ridiculous. It's awesome. But also, I am not trying to don't say take, anything bad Don't about take Teddy. this away from me, Andy. He but will always be my favorite president. Oh, wait, no, 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 no. He's by no, no, far no. the most okay. fun president. Got it. No, no, no. Okay, He's by yeah, far right. the most fun president. Donald Trump's my favorite president. I get it. That's That's what you're trying to get me to say. Okay, cool. No, I get it. Anyway, <laughs> all right. Sorry, I'm sorry. You can cut that out. I know you're not into that. Um, anyway, right. Teddy tapped. Roosevelt, because he's always a little boy at heart, had begun very enthusiastically plotting a stunning way to start his retirement. Do you know what that way was? Enlighten me, Andy. You've heard about it. It's with a big game hunting expedition to East uh -huh. Africa. Uh huh. Yep. Teddy spent months studying, writing letters to men who had hunted in the region, learning which caliber gun to use on which species, because you don't want to just literally have them explode. You want to keep them. Oh, yeah. You got, I mean, you got to bring those back, put them up on your wall. Well, this one, he was in a joint thing with the Smithsonian. So the idea is go kill a bajillion freaking animals. Mission accomplished, by the way. Mm -hmm. Get the yep. banner on the cruiser. He did it, but he learned exactly, literally, like, bringing the experts, like, so a rhino, what's the best way to take down one of those bad boys and learn from the real experts? And somehow, Fritz Duquesne had inserted himself into this rather informal committee of experts and was invited to meet with the president. I'd say he's an expert. I'd, I'd, I think he'd, he'd be qualified. Probably yeah. more so than others. Most likely. He's more qualified than he is to be a reporter. Oh, 100%. Yeah. 
But he and the president, he and Teddy talked for more than two hours, which is a lot of time to take up. And he told the press when he left, he said he was very impressed. And he, and I quote, he seems to have mastered all the details. Now, over the next year, Teddy Roosevelt's journey through Africa would unfold in the newspapers back home. I mean, they were always writing updates of dispatches that Teddy would send out because one of the things Teddy knew is he knew how to keep the crowd interested in him and whatever he was doing. Also, it helps just because he's an interesting guy. Yeah. But he also understood public relations pretty well. And this whole trip of his became a national fascination. And because Fritz had been called into to talk with the president and Fitz is a writer of a large newspaper, he figured, hey, I'm kind of near the center of this excitement. And so he was going to do his absolute best to capitalize on it. Of course. So he wrote a series of syndicated columns in which he drew on his own adventures in Africa to speculate about the kinds of animals and adventures the president was now encountering. Okay. Wait, so he's not even there. He's just... (laughs) No! He's... I imagine... Hmm. Okay. Today, it's water buffalo. Yep. And literally, he would just... This is probably what's going on. And that was his column. Okay. Cool. But that can only last for so long. And so the momentum of that kind of petered out. Fritz, beginning to understand newspaper and public relations himself, decided to go negative. Ooh, no, no. (laughs) So he kept Mm. his name in the papers by mocking Teddy Roosevelt, calling him, and I quote, nothing more than a dandy tourist blustering across the continent with a team of Africans to do the real hunting for him. I don't like him anymore. (laughs) And as Roosevelt readying to return in early 1910, Fritz announced that he believed the former president might have contracted a deadly still dormant disease and should not be allowed back into the country. Oh my gosh. (laughs) He's got COVID, everybody. Part of me, I'm going, I think he's afraid of Theodore Roosevelt and is trying to create a story to keep her from coming close. He should be afraid of Theodore (laughs) Roosevelt. He was a rough rider. He, He was a boxer. He went partially blind in his left eye during his presidency from bare knuckle boxing. Because he's an idiot, a lovable idiot, but an idiot. However, by the time Theodore came back, Fritz had adapted all of his hunting stories into a theatrical lecture called East Africa, the Wonderland of Roosevelt's Hunt. Oh, my God. And took the show on tour. Of course he did. Of course he did. (laughs) It featured moving pictures and things that are basically overhead projector quality slides Mm -hmm. of hunting scenes and savage life in darkest Africa, all narrated by quote, Captain Fritz Duquesne end quote, which is what he had started calling himself. And he described himself as a man who knows and feels what he tells because it is what he has lived, which is a mouthful. That is a mouthful that doesn't say a lot, actually. Like that's, Exactly. It's a lot of words to say say a little thing. Nothing. Yep. As it happened, he was booked for two shows at the Columbia Theater in Washington. Oh, okay. Just at the same time as a congressman by the name of Robert Broussard was gathering experts for his congressional hearing about hippos. It was March 24th, 1910. Under discussion was H was Bill HR 23261 which was a bill to appropriate to appropriate $250,000 
for the importation of useful new animals into the United States, or what the public would refer to as the hippo bill. The hippo bill. And it's only a bill. It's it's a bill. Sitting there on Capitol Hill. That's right. It was introduced by the congressman Robert Broussard, who's from Louisiana. Yeah, that's a Creole name. Yeah. I actually work with someone whose last name is Broussard. I need to ask oh. if they're related. Oh, you should. Look back in your family Can history. you imagine? Broussard's a really, really, really interesting dude. Um, the entire, Basically, the entire state called him Uncle Bob. He basically always ran unopposed, but would always just throw him. So he loved campaigning. Love it. Loved campaigning. So he would not be running against anybody, but he'd still be in like every town, shaking everybody's hand. Like, hey, I'm Uncle Bob. Or whatever he said, I don't know. But he's a really interesting guy. As I explained in the last episode, at this time, America is facing what it was commonly referred to as the meat question, that America is rapidly expanding in population, but unfortunately, there's no more room for them to grow west, and they're mm-hmm. running out of food to feed all of these people. So there is this like, what do we do for meat? Robert Broussard had read an article that was written by our boy from last episode, Mr. Frederick Burnham, who mm-hmm. talked about how all of his experiences in Africa, there's a bunch of animals that could absolutely be brought over here to the United States and they would help solve that problem. Yeah, I don't trust his opinion on on what is edible, though. He ate, <laughs> you shouldn't. He he drank blood from like like a, like a, yeah, cow's blood. Like, a like a Capri Sun, like yeah. uh, and then sealed it back up for later and he did what was those deer cake things yeah deer cakes yep yeah like uh i don't trust his opinions like most people say about mine because i'm a picky eater i don't trust his but i get it you know we needed it we needed the meat yeah we We needed needed it and it was desperate he's like there's a bajillion freaking animals over there we are running out of animals over here and i went there and also frederick burnham and one of the things i didn't get into a whole bunch in that episode like we touched on it at the beginning about how he's developing himself, but he's mm-hmm. the like the biggest fan and the biggest believer of the sort of the ideas that we like to consider that we, we listen to propaganda and America was founded on self-determination and, and rugged individualism and blah, 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 all those things. And yeah, that's true. Like that is, that is how much of that, like pretty much all great things happen because of those qualities. Of but he was sort of the last of that dying breed. It was like, no, and he's looking at American like, I'm not seeing those qualities reflected in our greater society. And so even in his article that he wrote, he's still calling people like, you, we could still do this. This is some, yeah, it's kind of weird, but we could do it. Yeah, absolutely. Like if we just believe it and we say, hey, we're going to buckle down and we're going to eat them giraffes, you guys. Like we're going to eat them giraffes up like freaking buffalo wings. Don't come on. Giraffe wings. We can do this. I need a giraffe. Believe in yourself. America is basically Ooh. what he was saying. I bet the neck is really tough, though. Oh, you don't want to eat the neck. No, you don't need the neck meat. A shoulder, the back strap. However, Robert Broussard, as a politician, took a slightly different angle on it in terms of why he was supporting this whole idea. Because mm-hmm. initially, for him, the hippos did not. He was like, yeah, we need hippos, but not for food. Cousin Bob had actually set out to solve a different crisis for all of his constituents. And that crisis was a flower. A flower? A flower. A flower? I mean, a type of flower. Okay. A type of flower. So not like one singular, like 
this flower itself is a problem. <laughs> but these flowers are issues. The flowers are water hyacinths. Okay. And they've been brought to New Orleans in 1884 and distributed as gifts by the Japanese delegation to an international uh, cotton expedition. Exposition. Okay. I bet they became like an invasive species like kudzu. Oh, yeah. New Orleanians loved the frilly pale lavender flowers and planted them as decorations all around the city in garden ponds. The hyacinths multiplied rapidly and the plant reproduces asexually. Soon they were spreading through all the local waterways, clotting together into huge impenetrable mats and then drifting toward the mouth of the Mississippi River like big menacing hairballs towards a drain. Ugh, lovely descriptive word. Like I great, think you. great mental picture, but yeah, you. By 1910, when he introduced the, when Cousin Bob introduced the bill, the flowers had been plaguing the state for at least a decade. They clogged up streams, made shipping routes impassable. They blanketed rivers, wetlands, hogging the oxygen, killing fish. Like literally these flowers are destroying the ecosystem of Louisiana. Um, ever like most invasive species mm -hmm. do. And so literally like they said that it was transforming some of the state's greatest resources into a chain of stinking dead zones. Oof. And uh, Broussard said that the War Department was staging an all-out offensive against the flower, but they've only been partially successful. They clean a stream today, and in a month, it's covered all over again with the same plant. Because it's America, and it's the War Department, they'd even tried throwing oil on the hyacinth set it on fire, but the plant would just sink to the bottom, wait out the disturbance, and then send up another bulb from the bottom and start all over again. They talked to the War Department in Australia about it their- It seems like it. About their uh, ostrich fighting technique. But this is more embarrassing because they're losing to a plant. It's a flower. Yeah, it's not even yeah, a They're bird. losing to it's a even, flower. It's not even a-, a Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> Wow. Okay, cool. Did not know that. Yes. So it occurred to Robert Broussard that perhaps an animal could be brought to Louisiana to swallow this particular problem right on up. Mm. And so right before um, he had kind of really met Frederick Burnham, he had encountered a very, very strange aging bureaucrat called William Newton Irwin. No relation to Steve. Okay. WN, as he went by, WN Irwin was a veteran researcher at the Bureau of Plant Industry at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Irwin had decided the only way forward was to find ways of wringing nourishment out of land that now seemed barren or worthless. For example, the vast marshes along the Gulf Coast. So literally, he's like, okay, there's a problem with America, this whole meat question thing. But what we need to look at is the areas that's not producing, that can't really produce the crops that we need, but there's stuff there. So how can we assemble like a new set of tools, new technologies to unlock the potential there? And Irwin saw the hippopotamus as that technology. So it sounds like there's a lot of questions that the hippopotamus is the answer to. I mean, think of all the questions you have of life. How often is hippopotamus the correct answer? Well, here I'm hearing it three times in a row. So now are. It, it makes me wonder if that should just be my answer to certain life questions and see how it plays out. You should try it. It works here because it turns out hippopotamuses, well, they eat aquatic vegetation like water hyacinths and they eat a lot of it. Yeah. And so he hypothesized that if you deposit some hippos in the hyacinth choke stream, they'd suck it clean in no time. So he's saying that the hippo can solve two problems. 
It can solve Louisiana's problem with the flour while also helping answer the meat question by converting that problem that's now eaten all the flowers into meat. Mm -hmm. So he said, and I quote, in front of a congressional committee, that the hippo would turn the plague that they now have in the South into good, wholesome flesh for our people. Love it. He saw the hippo as a perversely elegant win-win. I wish this was the sort of stuff that was going on today. Like this is what government should be doing. Exactly. Yeah. I should write. We should write letters to our congressman about bringing the hippos back. How awesome would that be? That would be great for Irwin and Frederick Burnham. Any resistance to their ideas about hippos and African animals. They felt it really came down to simple, small mindedness. Irwin said that the only reason Americans didn't already eat hippopotamus is because, and I quote, their neighbors don't, or because no one ever told them it was the proper thing to do. Burnham saw the meat question as a test of American ingenuity and resolve. To defend our freedom and way of life, some generations of Americans are called to go to war. This generation was being called to import hippopotamuses and eat them. Love it. Love, love it. (laughs) Love everything about it. He's not wrong. Like, yeah, the reason it's weird to eat that is because your neighbor doesn't eat it. But culturally Mm -hmm. speaking, people eat horse in other countries. People eat like cat in other countries. People eat dog in other countries. I'd eat an ostrich. Yeah. Um, I'd eat it. Yeah. But he's not wrong. Like it is very much a cultural thing. He's saying that in a more roundabout way, but. Oh, they get very much into that because right after W or N.W. Irwin testifies to Congress, it's Frederick Burnham's turn. Okay. And he challenged the committee to consider how bizarre it is that we only eat cows, pigs, sheep, and poultry, Mm. just four types of animals. And basically all of them had themselves been imported by the Europeans centuries ago. Mm, So why is it that somewhere along the line in history, we stopped importing it? Yeah. We stopped feeling, and I quote, entitled to improve our country's food stocks by infusing them with animals from the great global pantry abroad. Well-worded, strong argument. Because if it wasn't even for that, we'd just be eating deer. Absolutely. And deer's great. I love deer. Mm -hmm. But I'm glad that we have steak. Yeah, he said it was only the passage of time that had made a pork chop or a bowl of chicken soup feel American, Mm. not their actual origins. Dude, blowing my mind right now. And he said time would make hippo roast just as familiar and American. It could. It could. He also brought up that hippopotamuses would only be just a slightly stranger than other animals that had recently been brought into the country. The federal government itself had introduced Russian reindeer as a food source in Alaska. And in the 1850s, uh, the United States Secretary of War and eventual president of the Confederacy, Jefferson Davis, had brought African camels to the deserts of the American Southwest because he was like, they will outperform horses as pack animals in that area. Did not know that. And they did. Of course they did. They're camels. Exactly. But it was explained to committee that silly emotions had gotten in the way of good sense because all the soldiers on horseback made fun of the soldiers that were asked to ride the camels (laughs) and the camel riders began refusing to ride their camels. They were bullied out of using (laughs) Out of using camels. Because I was about to say, I was like, so if the Confederacy won, we'd be riding around in camels, but 
I guess not, because all the racists were also bullying each other and saying, yes. ha, 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 you well, got Jefferson <laughs> Davis, that time, he was the Secretary of War for the United States as a whole. Like, oh, that wasn't okay. just a Confederacy-only thing. Oh, that was great. pre-Confederacy. So <laughs> it was like a decade before the Confederacy. Wonderful, wonderful. And so That's all those a- camels were just left to scatter off in the desert. Okay. So it wouldn't be that surprising if somewhere there's a couple of feral camels out there <laughs> doing their thing in Arizona. <laughs> That's amazing. Broussard is like, hey, I got these two guys. Irwin, he's like the really geeky bureaucrat. Then you've got Burnham, who is, I am a scout and I have seen the horrors of war. I have been around them. Like he's he's got a gravitas to him that he just brings. And, is, and also his arguments are dang good. All these arguments are, I've not heard a bad argument yet about bringing hippos over. Robert Broussard had invited yet another speaker that afternoon. And this one wound up being the star attraction. He introduced this man to the committee as a hunter of great note in Africa, who just so happened to be touring America right now, lecturing on the African continent's wild animals. Mm. I now desire to present to the committee, Broussard announced, Captain Fritz Duquesne. The Black Panther of the Veiled. <laughs> now, of course, it is fascinating to point out that two of these witnesses, guys literally seated next to each other in the hearing room, were bitter arch enemies who had both vowed <laughs> to kill the other person not all that long before. But now find themselves on the same side of the table. Exactly. When it comes to bringing hippopotamus meat across pond into the United States. That's a sentence I did not think I would... <laughs> create an aim toward a friend today thankful for this podcast that i get to do stuff like that (laughs) fritz has to follow frederick burnham who is a literal living legend Mm -hmm. and he immediately decided he needed to establish his singular credibility on the subject at hand and he said and i quote i am as much one of the african animals as the hippopotamus oh my god (laughs) And as a, in a sense, in both metaphorically and actuality, his appearance at this committee hearing was both an advertisement for his traveling performances <laughs> and a performance in itself. The man loved attention, desired attention, and knew how to work his audience when he got it. Okay. So he walked the congressman through his knowledge of hippos, charmingly answered all their questions. He described how easy it was to domesticate a hippo how you can feed a young one from a bottle, and I quote, like a baby, and lead it, and I quote, on a leash like a pudgy hound. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh, wow. Another quote, he says, it is absolutely not dangerous, he said of the animal, and described the meat, especially from young castrated males, as delicious, satisfying, and a sustaining meal. Don't. Don't hippos kill more people than like lions every year? Yes. Hippos kill more people than any other animal on the planet. There you go. So, yes, Perfectly they're safe. very dangerous. No, just, just throw a leash on it. Walk it like a dog. That'll be great. Don't <laughs> Jimmy do that. <laughs> However, Fritz wasn't done with just hippos because he's put on a whole show. He suggested elands, which is a kind of brutish antelope um, as another great addition. He, what about elephants? Hannibal's army crossed the Pyrenees mountains on elephants. 
Yep. And he was like, so, you know, if they were able to do that, that should give us some idea of the animal's usefulness and stamina. And then the very end, he said, and I quote, I think I have about exhausted the proposition. He told the committee, although he did add that if the committee wanted him to perform his full lecture right then and there, he'd be glad to because he happened to have all of his transparencies with him. He came prepared. So there's like an Edison and Tesla thing going on. You feel that, huh? I feel that way. Yeah. In terms of him and uh, him and Frederick. I don't know which one is which, though. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're going to have to wait till next week to find out because this is where I'm ending it. We have a lot more discussion to do about hippos in America. And and I'll be honest, incredible mind blowing twist about Fritz Duquesne coming up. Okay, love the setup. Can't wait. I do think, like, I'm fully behind. I'm behind this idea now. Like, right? And I th- like, I almost think it would it could help with the endangerment of the, like some of these species. Like, if we're bringing them over with the idea of like we we want these for food, we need a lot of them for food. Mm-hmm. So that that like, well, I say bring them. We've we've got to have a, some of these in in I'm sure Animal Kingdom in Disney World. Has oh yeah. Some of this stuff, which I mean, that's already in the south. Like that's a zoos good all over the place. Yeah. So really, what they need to do is they just need to start making them pump out a bunch of hippo babies, and then we set up some farmland and start treating them like cattle. And that's because we've got a ton of cattle here in this country. Like, yeah, I think that's what that's what we do. That's that, and I think it would really help with the numbers. If we had a merch store for this podcast we would absolutely be churning out Hippos for America shirts right now. Hippos for America. Uh, that would be another great email address <laughs> that I'm not doing. Nope, it's too much. We already too have much. three. Mm-mm. But anyways, that is where we're ending it this time. You'll have to catch us next week for the final installment on Hippos for America mm. and all the genuine craziness that comes with it. Okay. Because when I say you've seen nothing yet, you've seen nothing yet. (laughs) So thank you for listening. Yeah, thank you. And uh, listeners, if you want to email or write letters to your congressman, let us know. We'll start up a whole petition and campaign to make this happen. You can email us at literally, apparently at this point, any email address you decide to choose. We have them all. Just, yeah, just run your hands across your keypad. And then put at gmail.com at the end. That's probably going to come it's, to us. We'll see it. Yep. But you could also just do midnight narwhal pod at gmail.com, discount shark week at gmail.com, or the wildfire gang that's fire with a Y at gmail.com. We have all of them. We have I'm all of I'm still those. not sure exactly why, but we do. Nope. Because I have a problem. That's the why. <laughs> uh, wonderful. Yes. Thank you for listening. Uh, we'll talk at you next week. May your ears be blessed. All right. Bye. Bye. I brought up this billboard in the last episode, at least I, unless you cut mm-hmm. it out. Yes. Uh, I did cut of, it out, yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm going to bring it up again and you can cut it out <laughs> I'll again. I'll cut it out want. again, probably. <laughs> okay. And then it's like, hey, I'm metal. I'm sinking. And then, yeah, they do that like weird, like, yes, leaf falling in the breeze. <laughs>